Well, this morning we are beginning a series entitled Tough as Nails. Uh, some of you may have heard the name before, the name of David Curry. David Curry is the, uh, the director of Open Doors. And this organization, Open Doors, has been around for about 60 years. And their vision and their mission is to survey and keep an eye on global uh, persecution and globally, uh, specifically towards Christianity and to help those that have been the victims of persecution. And uh, many of you uh, actually may not know this, but just four years ago, 2016, was the worst year in modern history for the persecution of Christians. And 2015 was the worst year in modern history for the killing of Christians. In 2015, we just know of 7,000 Christians that were killed just because they were Christians. Uh, they were executed or murdered. In 2018... 245 million Christians were living in places where they experienced high levels of persecution. And we know of, in 2018, 4,305 Christians that were killed for their faith. In 2018, 1,847 churches and other uh, churches and other Christian buildings uh, were attacked, most of them destroyed. That's an average of five per day. We know of 3,150 believers who were arrested or detained without trial, sentenced, or imprisoned. One in nine Christians experienced high levels of persecution. Uh, that level grew by 14% in 2018. That is an increase of 30 million men, women, and young people. So just to put that in perspective, just the increase of the number of Christians being persecuted is two million more, just two million more than the entire population of the state of Texas. So for 18 consecutive years, North Korea has ranked number one as the most dangerous place for Christians. And up to uh, just uh, up to uh, up until five years ago, North Korea was the only country that was considered extreme in their level for persecution of Christians. And today, just five years later, there are 11 countries. So 10 more in just five years. David Curry has said that the level of exclusion, discrimination, and violence against Christians in some countries of the world right now is akin to ethnic cleansing, not as it relates to people who are of the same faith, but specifically towards Christians. It's illegal to be a Christian in Afghanistan, and in North Korea, Christians are labeled by the state as hostile elements to be eradicated. Now, I share all of those stats, but we don't feel them, do we? We don't feel it. Uh, we don't feel it, in, uh, but it is a reality. I mean, we're beginning to feel it on the periphery because of what's happening around the world and what's begun to happen in Western countries and even in our country. We exist in a world, in a country where there is a narrative that's driven by a 24-hour news cycle, uh, by mainstream news and social media, both of which thrive on fear, drama, and anxiety. As one author puts it, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, recently, I saw this image and I just felt like it summed it up. It says, uh, newsfeed, this is why you should be angry. Click here to feel righteous about it. Or look at this nice thing that agrees with your worldview perfectly. 
or why you should be afraid, click here to learn about something terrifying that would, will statistically never happen to anyone you know. But that sums it up. I mean, every single day, you and I are being uh, force-fed by every, you're force-fed every possible reason to be divided, to be filled with angst, to be filled with fear. And every one of us, regardless of whether you're Christian or not, we are being and will be, continue to be forced to decide how, you, how do you deal with that anxiety? How do you deal with that fear? And the added bonus, it's an election year. And as most of us know, politicians, left, right, independent, it doesn't matter, nearly all of them masterfully play into fear, don't they? And uh, the media, right-leaning, left-leaning, those that live on social media, they decide the clips and the sound bites and the posts and the memes that primarily amplify the words or the candidates of their choosing for or against that fuel and feed the divide, the angst, and the fear based on their political bias. That's our world. And as a result, we wrestle with questions like, how secure is secure enough? How many guns are guns enough? How much defense is defense enough? How much wall is wall enough? How much financial security is security enough? How much can you withdraw from the world? How far should you withdraw? What will make for a secure future for our children and grandchildren? And as an individual, you have to decide, how do I deal with the anxiety and the fear in the world that's amplified by unprecedented access to a 24-hour media cycle that we have to it and it has to us. In addition to what's happening all around the world and inside this country, there are many Christians that feel like there's been legislation, there's been things in the public school system, things in academics and this culture in general that have begun to push us, that began some time ago, to push us away from center uh, as, as it relates to Christianity and that Christianity in recent decades, even in our country, is under assault. Now, not in the same way that it is in other parts of the world, but as a Christian, there's a sense in which we had been the center or the standard in terms of culture past, but that is no longer the case. And in this election year, there's a sense in which battle lines have been drawn. And in some circles, there's a very real and intensifying sense of being in a civil war for power over this country. And here's the question that you and I need to answer and what we're going to be working to answer over the next three weeks. And it is, how should we respond? How should a Christian, how should a Christian respond to anxiety and fear? How should a Christian respond to polarized politics? How should Christians respond to an environment or a context where there's actually something to be afraid of or things to worry about? And connected to this, as we dig into this over the next three weeks, we're going to look back at the origins of our faith and, and, and deal with this question, is your faith, is your faith, is my faith, is our version of Christianity actually worth living for? Is it worth the price that was paid to make it available to us? In 2020 America, Wichita, Kansas, what does that kind of faith look like? And this is far, far more, uh, it's far more important than you might, may realize. And that's why we're going to talk about it for the next three weeks as we've just begun 2020. Now, to begin the discussion, we have to go all the way back to Christianity, to the event that everybody knows about, everybody's heard of, everybody's seen a movie about or seen a picture of. It's this glorious, horrible event where we see the standard set for all of us, for all of us who choose to follow Jesus. But we forget 
we forget. We forget because we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave and in the U.S. of A, where we have so much religious freedom and where we've never really felt anything in terms of persecution or pressure to try and force us to withdraw from or recant our faith in Jesus. We've just never had that. The epicenter of the Christian faith is this horrible, wonderful event that graphically and concisely sets the tone. It sets the tone for Christianity, yet we've not had to lean much into this element of Christianity because we have been so blessed to live in the nation that we live in. And for those living in Europe, it's been the same for many, many, many years. But that began to change in the United States with the attacks of 9-11. And it began to change in the European nations uh, with the three coordinated terror attacks of November 2015 in Paris. I mean, do you remember that? It's where 130 people were killed, 350 people were injured by Islamic extremists. And that attack was significant because it created a societal shift in the sense of security, like it did in the U.S. after 9-11. Now, especially in the U.S., it's, we can easily forget We can easily forget that in the beginning, Jesus, the founder, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, the person we sing about, the person that there's artwork about, the person that we tell our children about, the person in whose name we pray, he's at the center of all things Christian. We forget that in the beginning, he was betrayed by a friend. He was unjustly arrested, illegally tried and convicted. The witnesses and ultimately the judge would be bribed. He was flogged, which meant that he was tortured, not so that someone could get information. He was tortured simply to keep a small group of people happy. And we just need to try and wrap our mind around that. The gospel writer Mark, who got his information from Peter, he tells us, wanting to satisfy the crowd, to satisfy a crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged. So during a festival day, the the governor wanted to make certain people happy. So in order to do that, he released someone who had become sort of a folk hero. He was an insurrectionist. He was a killer named Barabbas. He sets Barabbas free, and he has Jesus flogged. Now, in more recent years, there have been movies made, and we've gotten more of a picture of what flogging really is, because we just kind of read it, and he was flogged. Flogging was gruesome. Flogging was a skill that was a mastered art form that one was trained in. Two Roman centurions would each grip a wooden handle about a foot long. Attached to that were leather straps six to eight feet long, and then wound into the straps were bits of rock, metal, and glass. And the goal was to simply and slowly rip the skin off of a person's chest, back, and stomach, one lash at a time. The hands of a person being flogged were tied to the top of a post behind uh, on, on the top of a pole so that their entire bodies were exposed. And this is what Pilate had done to Jesus. Why? To satisfy a crowd. After he was flogged, with skin hanging off of him, blood dripping off of him, in places, muscles exposed, he's taken back to headquarters where Pilate's men decide to have a little fun with him and with the king of the Jews and the the man who stands at the epicenter of Christianity, the man in whose name people all over the world gather, some of them gathering in places where if they were caught, they would be arrested or killed. 
The writer Matthew, who is an eyewitness of all things Jesus, informed us, informs us. They stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And again, can you imagine what his back looked like? Imagine what this felt like. They put a scarlet robe on him, and then they twisted together that crown of thorns that we so romanticize, this crown of thorns, and they set it on his head. And then they put a staff in his right hand, hand, and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, and they took the staff, and then they struck him on the head again and again. And if that wasn't enough, Pilate gave Jesus the maximum sentence, no mercy. Now, you need to know that the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. Crucifixion was not designed to kill a man quickly. It was designed to prolong agony as long as possible. The idea was to inflict such shame and such pain in such a public way that anyone who saw crucifixion or the aftermath would have such fear in their hearts that they would never, under any circumstances, cross Rome, cross the Roman Empire. And the most historically acceptable technique was a spike or a nail through the wrist, through the bones of the wrist, to suspend and hold the weight of the body, and then a nail through a foot or through the feet so that the victim could push up in order to breathe. Because you see, a victim didn't bleed to death because of crucifixion. They slowly suffocated to death because they couldn't breathe. And in art and in movies, the, the, uh, those crucified, they're depicted as being many, many feet up off the ground. But again, remember, the idea of crucifixion is shame. So in reality, these men were oftentimes just inches, maybe a foot above the ground. So that way, those that were inflicting this horrendous, horrendous death and torture could look them right in the eye and mock them until the very moment of their death. And again, the eyewitness Matthew, he tells us, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. They said, come down from the cross if you are the son of God. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Now remember, Jesus was not captured as he was trying to flee or evade arrest. Jesus was not captured trying to make his way to the desert of Engedi so that he could hide out in some of the same caves that David hid in. He wasn't captured in some port city trying to make his way across the Mediterranean to hide out on some island and get mixed in with the Jews or head to Ephesus or Galatia. Your Savior and my Savior, the Jesus of history, rode into Jerusalem on Main Street in broad daylight. By his own will, his own power, knowing what awaited him. And part of our problem is the art. And I'm not blaming the artists. They simply are products and victims of the era that they did their artwork in or the culture. But part of the problem is when you hear the name Jesus, something or someone comes to mind. And I have a feeling for most of us, what or who comes to mind when we think of Jesus is something like this. Behold, the only non-Jew of all Israel. Uh, this guy could not have done what Jesus did. This is important. If you're, if you're a Christian, your Savior was extremely bold. 
your Savior and my Savior, and we can't even imagine the political context or the religious context for this. He walked into the, where my wife and I were just this, la- just this last year in this multi-acre temple complex in Jerusalem. He, he goes in there. He walks into this complex. He overturns table, tables and he runs everybody out by himself. He did this because they were selling sheep and animals that were an embarrassment. They were unfit for sacrifice, and they were taking advantage of these people that had traveled from far away and using different monies and doing an exchange rate on coins of just a ridiculous interest uh, rate. And so he turns over these tables. He runs out all these money changers from the temple courts, and he does it by himself. And when the temple leaders confront him, they, they look him in the eye and they ask not, what are you doing? They ask him, by whose authority are you doing this? Who do you think you are? Because there was something about the countenance, the presence, just the, 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 the gaze and the demeanor of Jesus that just exuded authority and overflowed with authority, which is again why they ask them, by whose authority do you do these things? Your Savior was bold. Your Savior was fearless. He was braver than hell, stronger than steel, and in the end proved to be tougher than nails. And then he looks at you and I and he says, no, follow me. Follow me. He said it this way, whoever wants to be my disciple, my follower, my learner, must deny themselves. Like me, you must deny yourself, which means from time to time, you must say no to the person in the mirror in order to say yes to Jesus. From time to time, there's going to be conflict between Jesus' will for you and your will for you. And if you've decided to to, to follow Jesus, then that means you have to get in the habit of saying no to you in order to say yes to Jesus. Whoever wants to be my disciple, like me, must deny themselves, and like me, take up their cross. And for us, cross is a jewelry. Cross is a tattoo. It's something on the top of church buildings. But for the first century people, this was not art. It, wasn't a, it represented death. It represented the worst kind of death. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, there are going to come days and seasons and circumstances where you're going to have to choose And to choose me, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to die to self. You're going to have to take up your cross, and you're going to have to follow me daily. That means you follow me when it feels safe, and it means you follow me when it doesn't feel safe. It means you follow me when you get something out of it, like, you know, I, I've, I've taught you about how to have a better relationship or how to, how to get a relationship, how to make a good, good decision, and it was just so practical and helpful and makes my life better, and thank you. And Jesus says, I'm not just calling you to follow me when it's practical and helpful. I'm also calling you to follow me when it feels like it's impractical and it doesn't seem helpful at all, and it may cost you something. To be my follower means you follow me when it helps, and it means you follow me when it hurts, when it's going to cost you. And Jesus knew, Jesus understood our propensity for safety and risk risk averseness and, and how we want to make sure everything is in order and under our control, especially if you're a blue, and it's in the heart of a man and a woman to protect themselves and their family, to be risk adverse. But and when it looks like there's danger, it's natural. 
So before he was arrested and crucified, all the time he was teaching and telling his followers, don't fear, do not fear, fear not. Don't, don't fear. Don't, don't be afraid of, of, of those who the worst thing that they can do is only harm your body, but they cannot touch your soul. Jesus, who walked into Jerusalem knowing what would happen, he says, if you want to fear something, okay, fear the one, fear my Father, fear your Heavenly Father, who can destroy both body and soul in a place that he called hell. Fear is going to come. Fear is an emotion. Fear will take us by surprise. Jesus says, when that happens, just remember, okay, there's something to fear. Fear your heavenly father, but never allow your fear of someone or a group of people or a circumstance that the worst thing that they can do is destroy your body, take your possessions, mess with your 401k, mess with your paycheck. Never let that, that fear of them or that to rule your life. And that's easy to say. It's easy to say. Feels impossible to do. So Jesus knew, like, I got to help them understand. And so there's this incident. A few months ago, we talked about this, but it bears repeating that one day he says, okay, guys, uh, to his closest guys, uh, get in a boat. We're heading out. And uh, these were men of the seas and the sea, and they're at the Sea of Galilee. These are, they're fishermen. They own boats. They grew up around boats. So they get in to, to cross the sea. Jesus goes in the back, covers up with a scratchy blanket, falls asleep. Storm comes. These guys have been in storms before, but this time it looks like the boat is going to sink and they are going to drown and they are terrified. So they finally decide we have got to wake the master up. They shake Jesus. They wake him up. They're panicked and afraid. And he says, oh, you of little faith. Why? Why are you so afraid? Because we're going to drown. But I told you, don't fear anything that can only take your body, but not your soul. I've talked about this. Why are you so afraid? To repeat Jesus, we might drown. I know. But why are you afraid? You have little faith. Have you not embraced what I, 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 I've taught you? I mean, you guys, you guys, you like following me when we walk into a city and you're like rock stars and everybody, they can't bring you enough food and they want your autograph because you've been hanging out with me and uh, you, you like it. You like it when it's comfortable being my disciple, my follower. You're not afraid when things are going great. So why would you be afraid when things seem to go the other direction? You trust me when things are going well. Why don't you trust me when things are going not so well? Then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. And the men, and for those of you here, maybe you remember this, they were amazed and they asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And Mark, again, who got his information from Peter, he says that after Jesus calmed the storm, that they feared a great fear. That as much as they feared the storm after Jesus calmed it, they feared Jesus more than they feared the storm, which was exactly Jesus's point. It's as if Jesus was saying to them through the boat ride, look, if you're going to be afraid, fear God. When fear starts to overwhelm you, you need to remind yourself, wait a minute, I will not succumb or submit myself to fear of anything or anyone that can only touch the body because my ultimate allegiance and trust is my ultimate fear is in a God who controls both body and soul. So Jesus says, in the meantime, in the meantime, when it is easy, when it is hard, I want you to follow me. Now for some of us, 
This is extremely relevant today because of whatever it is that's going on in your life. For others of you, you know, like things are going pretty good. Uh, I prayed for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I got one. I prayed for a job or I got laid off and already I got some things teed up. My bills are paid. My relationships feel, feel pretty solid. I'm not overly concerned about the politics and stuff. And, you know, life is good. To, to you, I would just say, just log this one away for later. Because here's the unavoidable reality. Uncertainty. There's one thing that is for certain in this life, and that is eventual uncertainty. But here's the message of Jesus for anyone and everyone who would choose to follow him. Uncertainty is unavoidable, but fearful is optional. Now, fear is not optional. Fear comes and goes. We have no control over when fear crops up, but living a fearful life is optional. Living in a state of or submitting to fear is always optional. And Jesus, he proved it. Jesus proved it in the way that he lived his life before witnesses. He proved it ultimately in his death before witnesses. And then he proved it in his defeat of death through the resurrection that was witnessed. It's the reason that we're here today talking about it. And it wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul who brought us half of the New Testament. He was severely persecuted. Once he was grabbed and dragged out of the city because the Jews felt like he was undermining Judaism. The, 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 the pagans thought he was undermining the authority of paganism. And they take him out and they stone him and they left him for dead, figuring he will bleed to death and the animals will just eat his body and they go have dinner. And then sometime after that, Paul wakes up from being knocked out he cleans himself off, he finds his friends, and he continues on his journey and his mission. He did not say, okay, God, we're good, okay? Like, you need to find somebody else, I, I, I'm out. No, he continued. He continued to go and plant churches all around the Mediterranean rim. It's why we are here today. He was fearless because if, if we are a Jesus follower, he learned that we do not need to live fearfully. Because our fear is focused on only the one who has anything to do, anything to do with the destination of our souls. The Apostle Paul, after years of ministry, spanning thousands of miles, he knew he needed to go back to Jerusalem in one of the, in one of the most emotional scenes in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 21, he's with some other followers of Jesus and they were pleading with him to not go back to Jerusalem because he says, I need to go back. And they're like, please don't. If you go, wherever you go, you get in trouble. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and we don't know what's going to happen to you. We love you. We need you. What are we going to do without you? Like, again, everywhere you go, you get in trouble. Please do not go back to Jerusalem. And part of the reason they were so passionate in their pleading with Paul not to go is because Paul had said to them, this is the last time you're going to see, see me. You'll never see me again. And Paul says to his friends with a smile on his face, my friends, this is what God called me to do. I know when I go to Jerusalem, things are not going to be good. But I don't need to fear anyone or anything that can only touch the body and not the soul. And he goes to Jerusalem and he is arrested. He claims his Roman citizenship and now they don't know what to do with him. So they send him as a prisoner to Rome, Nero's Rome. He spends a long time in prison waiting for a sentence. And while he is there, he writes letters and documents that we are blessed to end up having. They ended up, many of them, into the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. And today, today, there's no more operational temple. 
There's no more Roman Empire, but the words and the letters of Paul have been translated into hundreds and hundreds of languages read every single weekend, every single day, all around the world, in countries where today in 2020 they can arrest and even kill you on the spot for speaking about, let alone possessing, fragments of these letters. I've mentioned to you before about the famous doctor uh, during Nero's Rome who'd go into the arena after the Christians had been mauled by animals, and because of the religious customs of the pagans, they couldn't touch a dead body, but they could examine bodies as long as they were still alive. And he goes in, and he wrote his observations, and one of the observations of this pagan Roman doctor, he writes of Christians, for fearlessness of death in the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. Because they learn to live without overwhelming fear. Every time you pick up your English Bible, you need to know this. I've talked about this, but you really need to understand this. Every time you pick up your English Bible, the first translation of the, uh, the English Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew was done by William Tyndale. William Wallace has nothing on William Tyndale. William Tyndale was considered an outlaw by the religious community, which also controlled the government, because he wasn't doing Christianity right. And he decided that the English-speaking people of England needed to have a Bible in their language in English that they could read on their own. And so he translated the entire Bible, the Old and the New Testament, from the Hebrew to English and the Greek to English. And it served as the basis for what would ultimately become the King James Bible, which is still in circulation today. But William Tyndale would never live to see that day. Rather, he was put on England's most wanted list because he translated the Bible into English. He was betrayed by a friend, arrested and jailed. He was tried uh, with heresy. And in 1536, he was condemned. And William Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than he dost. And on the day of his execution, it's recorded that at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice, Tyndale cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Then he was publicly strangled to death while at the stake. And then his dead body was burned, but to his final breath, he was fearless. He was fearless because he understood, I do not need to give in to fear about government powers or religious powers or any of that. I'm a follower of Jesus, and I am following him. And just two years later, two years later, the king of England, Henry VIII, declared William Tyndale's English Bible the official Bible of England. And it served as the basis for what would become the King James Bible. So all this leads us to three perplexing questions that I don't have the answer to today. It's what we're going to work through over the next three weeks. But these are the questions. The first is, is our version of Christianity worth all of that? Is our version, is the way that you live out and I live out our Christian life, the way I live out, uh, is our Christianity version worth all of that? 
Is it little more than just, you know, God, give me a great day and watch over me and help me find my car keys. And thank you, God, I found my car keys and I'm going to post that you helped me find my car keys. And Jesus got me a great parking spot at Bradley Fair and I had a great quiet time. And, and I'm not saying that any of that's invalid. I'm just simply asking the question. Is your and is my version of Christianity worth everything it took to get Christianity and the gospel and the good news of Jesus to the 21st century? Is it worth it? I mean, the good news is probably uh, not any of us will actually have to shed any amount of blood because we follow Jesus. The probability of us having to do that, it's just just not going to happen. But I believe that especially in the U.S. of A, we have the opportunity for so much more that we have the opportunity for so much more than what we are currently living and experiencing. And something that if we begin to embrace something bigger, make some changes, it would become irresistible to a huge percentage, which the majority percentage of Wichita, and of men and women and young people, are currently apathetic or indifferent or even resistant to Jesus or God or anything church. And to reach people no one else is reaching, it means we will need to do things no one else is doing. Which leads to the second question. The first question is about a version of faith worth living for. The second question is, is your version, is my version, is our church's version of Christianity worth dying for? And here's why I ask this question. Because today, Today, there are Christians in the world dying for a version of Christianity. And I will say that their version looks a lot like the version of the first and the second century. Are we that serious? Are we that serious? Are we denying ourselves? We have... We're so wealthy. We're so rich. Even for those that are struggled or laid off right now, we're, we're still so blessed. We get in vehicles. We have roofs over our head, climate control, food in our mouth. In the areas where we should deny ourselves, are we denying ourselves really? As we begin 2020, when it comes down to choosing or continuing to choose between what you want and what you really know deep down that God wants for you, what your Savior wants, are you... Are we going to continue rationalizing and procrastinating and justifying? Or are we going to finally say enough's enough? I need to do what Jesus wants me to do. Are we going to continue choosing us over what we know God, God's want, God wants? Or is it, it for you, is it a moment where you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to quit dating Jesus. Yeah, there's like this 80-90% of my life and I've kind of given that to God and some of it's easy, some of it's not so easy, but there's this little bit over here and, and God, I'm just going to take care of this over here. I got this. In a world filled with anxiety and fear with a media that amplifies it, especially in 2020 with an incredibly divisive political environment, well, we continue to let fear, we let fear uh, of all that overwhelm our trust in a sovereign God who is firmly on his throne regardless of who's in the White House. Will you allow yourself to get wrapped up in proof texting and cherry picking and finding people who write and blog and author in support of everything you already fear and believe? Or we say, one way or another, God is still on his throne. The last question is kind of a reiteration of the other two. Is 
the life I live worth the price they paid? Is the way that I live worth the price they paid? And again, so that you know that I'm not talking down to you, I ask these questions of myself every day. And every day I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a little short. I'm a little short. And it motivates me. And it prods me. And it pushes me. Not out of guilt or that God's going to get me, but I want to be better. I want to be worthy of that. Are Peter and Paul or maybe Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, you know, if they look at us, are, are, are they looking at us with two thumbs up? Like, way to go? Or is it you're, you're afraid of what? You're worried about what? You're worried about this or that in the next month, the next four years, the next eight years. If the Christians in Iraq, the Christians living in the border villages of Kenya, the, the Christians left or in hiding in the 11 countries designated as extreme persecution countries, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Sudan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, India, Syria, if they could look at us and look at our version of Christianity in Wichita, Kansas in 2020, what would they say? And I'm not asking these questions to make us feel guilty. I'm asking these questions simply to make us pause and think and evaluate. I'm asking these questions because these, again, are questions I ask myself. I'm asking these questions because I don't want to just be an average American Christian. I don't want us to just be an average American church. I don't want us to just be an average American church in Wichita, Kansas, because there's too much at stake. I mean, if you're a Jesus follower, do you know what's at stake? Everything. Everything is at stake. Jesus and Paul and Peter and John and all those who spent time with Jesus and spent time following him closely and listening, they understood this isn't just 10 tips for how to live a better life. That's not what church is. What's at stake is, according to our resurrected Savior, is that besides this life, there will come a day that the death rate is 100%, and every single one of us will stand before the one who Jesus says has control over the body and the soul. And Jesus' final words to his followers before he left this earth were, you, you are to be my witnesses. You're to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and the ends of the earth. Well, witnesses of what? That he died, that he rose from the dead, which means that we need to pay close attention and then apply everything that Jesus taught and promised and warned us about. I want to invite the band to come on up. In every generation, there's always been a remnant of men and women and young people that when fear started whispering in, in their ear, they developed a, ha a habit of saying, hey, I'm not listening to that because I follow Jesus. I follow a man who rode into Jerusalem and I embrace this man who embraced and conquered death on my behalf, on behalf of the world. So while uncertainty and fear is unavoidable, fear, fearful is optional. And so I'm going to learn to not opt, to opt not for fear. And again, especially, especially in this election season, if you're a Jesus follower, you need to know people globally are watching People are watching how we handle fear and the message that we're, we're sending. 
Who and what we embrace, our words and our attitude and our actions, they, they, they matter. And as we're going to see, we're sending the message, not just to other Jesus followers, but to those that are on the outside looking and trying to determine, is your God worth following? Is your Jesus worth following? And so for the next three, uh, next three weeks, this is what we're going to dig into. How do we respond to this? How do we handle this? How do we be passionate about things that are going on in the world and, 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 and engage that, but also without operating out of fear?